On May 31st, 1921, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, an event took place called the Tulsa Race Riots. It was one of the most severe incidents of racial violence in U.S. history. Lasting for two days, the riots left somewhere between 30 and 300 people dead, mostly African Americans, and destroyed Tulsa's prosperous black neighborhood of Greenwood, known as the Black Wall Street. More than 1,400 homes and businesses were burned and nearly 10,000 people were left homeless. Despite its severity and destructiveness, the Tulsa race riot was barely mentioned in history books until the late 1900s, when a state commission was formed to document the incident. It was also known as Black Wall Street. On May 30, 1921, Dick Rowland, a young African-American shoeshiner, was accused of assaulting a white elevator operator named Sarah Page in the elevator of a building in downtown Tulsa. The next day, the Tulsa Tribune printed a story saying that Roland had tried to rape Page, with an accompanying editorial stating that a lynching was planned for that night. That evening, mobs of both African Americans and whites descended on the courthouse where Roland was being held. When a confrontation between an armed African-American man there to protect Roland and a white protester resulted in the death of the latter, the white mob was incensed and the Tulsa riot was thus ignited. Over the next two days, mobs of white people looted and set fire to African-American businesses and homes throughout the city. Many of the mob members were recently returned World War I veterans trained in the use of firearms and are said to have shot African-Americans on site. Some survivors even claim that people in airplanes dropped incendiary bombs. When the riot ended on June 1st, the official death toll was recorded at 10 whites, 26 African Americans. And though many experts now believe at least 300 people were killed, shortly after the riot there was a brief official inquiry, but documents related to the riot disappeared soon after. The event never received widespread attention and was long noticeably absent from the history books used to teach Oklahoma school children. In 1977, a Tulsa Race Riot Commission was formed by the state of Oklahoma to investigate the riot and formally document the incident. Members of the commission gathered accounts of survivors who were still alive, documents from individuals who witnessed the riots but had since died, and other historical evidence. Scholars used the accounts of witnesses and ground-piercing radar to locate a potential mass grave just outside of Tulsa's Oaklawn Cemetery, suggesting the death toll might have been much higher than the original records indicate. In its preliminary recommendations, the commission suggested that the state of Oklahoma pay $33 million in restitution, some of it to the 121 surviving victims who had been located. However, no legislative action was ever taken on the recommendation. The commission had no power to force legislation. And in April of 2002, a private religious charity, the Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry, paid a total of $28,000 to survivors, a little more than $200 each using funds raised from private donations. In the next half hour or so, you're going to be speaking to Dr. Dwayne Bridges, a friend of mine from the University of Southern California, as we explore today's events of the um, riots uh, that have been taking place during the pandemic based on the outrage of a murder of a man named George 
underneath the knee of a metropolitan police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he kept his knee on a handcuffed man on his stomach on the ground for a total of nine minutes while the young man asked to be able to breathe until his last breath left his body. This is 2230 Redondo. Let's get to it. Hello, Dr. Bridges. How are you doing today? Yeah, good Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon to you. It's all good, man. Welcome to 2230 Redondo. So, man, um, where do we begin? You know, where do we begin? You and I knew each other uh, at USC. Uh, you were born and raised in the South in the Atlanta area. Uh, I think one of the most interesting stories I always tell people about you was when you were going to med school and you had this amazing final that you had to take. You get into this car accident, scramble yourself together, grab a cab, get to class and pass the test. I said, this is a man of some <laughs> serious red acid. <laughs> Big knot on my head. Exactly. So how's that not feeling today during all this pandemic and riots and murder on TV? Uh, well, yeah, a couple things. I, I, I grew up in the South, but I wasn't born in the South. I was actually born in Washington, D.C. Okay. Uh, but as you know, I grew up in the South. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so, you know, we've talked about what we might want to talk about on a cast before. But, you know, there's no way we can't talk about what's going on right now. And um, it uh, really brings me to, the, you know, you've heard the term uh, or the phrase past is prologue. I have. I have. I've heard that term. Definitely. Yeah. And so it kind of takes me back. My birthday was last weekend. So it takes me back 53 years uh, till shortly after my eighth birthday <clears throat> when um, I really became aware as a child about civil strife and the civil rights movement. And um, my earliest memories were of listening to discussions between my oldest brother and my oldest cousin about who was right between Malcolm X and Ma uh, Martin Luther King about the approach to dealing with all that was going wrong in the 1960s. And also very apparent to me that other than my cousin Ernie, everybody else in my family is pretty firmly planted in the Martin Luther King camp. So, you know, when people are talking about what's happened in the past five days here, you know, I, I often see the same dynamic in that. Are you a by any means necessary person or are you the person that says, no, it has to be peaceful and nonviolent? no matter what. And uh, I've vacillated between those two camps this past uh, several days. Similarly, because uh, after the press conference of that DA on Thursday, I, I was actually working at the time and going back and forth uh, in and out of my office while she was making her conference. And I just noticed that she was on TV for a long time because as I was continuing to visit and see patients, this lady was still on TV. And I thought, you know, the only reason she can be on TV this long is because she's justifying not arresting that cop that killed him, killed George Floyd. And certainly I was right. And after I figured that out and had the time to, I, I was so angry. I just, I couldn't work. I wanted to go home, 
just go to bed and, and wake up hoping and to wake up to a different reality uh, because I was just so angry. Um, so, you know, during that night, a lot of stuff got burned down. And then suddenly, you know, less than 12 hours later, they had a rationale for re arresting that cop when they didn't before. So, you know, what changed? So then you start seeing where, you know, somebody can clearly identify with Malcolm X's take on things back in the 60s. Certainly he changed later, but, you know, that that's, it, it just reminded me of that so much. Um, um, let's see. Um, describe the pain um, that you were feeling uh, while you were at work that made you want to just go to bed a little bit more for people. Well, the, the, the pain had been kind of going on all week long. Um, you know, me, like a lot of men, we try to, you know, suppress pain and hurt and, you know, and, and not deal with it because especially when we're busy, it's just not an easy thing to deal with. Um, but I just kept you know, hearing that guy, you know, call for his mother while he, while he was, you know, his last few words before he died. And I was just angry and sad the whole week. And so when uh, um, I, I had time to catch up and heard that the DA actually said that there was evidence countering a criminal charge against that cop, I just wanted everything burnt down um, to, to get there, to get things, uh, to get the tensions changed. That's not my nature. That's not the philosophy in the family I grew up with. But I, I just said, you know, mm -hmm. something's got to, you know, give here to get the right to give, to give the attention um, uh, to this. And I guess I'm not advocating violence, but, you know, I just uh, I was just, you know, the, the anger was uh, was you know, seething within me. Um. Have you experienced um, racial prejudice personally in your life? Uh, maybe not violence, but um, you're a successful man. You're in a profession. Uh, you help people. Um, I'm sure you've had to survive things, but as a young black man, do, do you have any memories of racial profiling or, 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 or racist acts that may have happened to you personally? You know, every, everyone has stories. I'm a physician and a surgeon. I earn in, income. I, I like cars. I like nice cars. And um, like a, a lot of professional black men, we get pulled over uh, because someone thinks that, you know, that we should be questions as to whether we belong in that car. Um, and um, it's my general habit to make sure uh, my work badges are visible when a cop comes up to my window. And that usually changes everything as soon as they recognize my title. Um, and I, I, I hurt for, you know, our brothers who, you know, who, who can't do that same thing, you know, and have to go through a, a longer test to prove that they shouldn't be harassing them. You know, so, um, you know, that that's all the time. I mean, not all the time, but that's happened to me. Um, certainly like others. Um, my, my history goes way back to, uh, um, Detroit, Michigan, or, or a small suburb called River Rouge, where my father was from. Um, my earliest memories of dealing with racism were that um, we were 
on a Sunday at the church my grandparents attended, which was across the street from their house, in the parking lot with a whole lot of people in the congregation sobbing and crying over us, particularly my grandmother. I just I don't think I'd ever seen my grandmother cry before that day. And they were so distraught, or she was so distraught, particularly because my father decided that he was going to take his wife and his uh, four small black sons to move to Atlanta to be part of the civil rights movement. And uh, and um, those people in that art and that crowd or that group of that was praying our on us before we left felt that we were going to our deaths, maybe because this was 1967. And uh, I also remember that um, we drove through Michigan, Ohio, Southern Ohio. But before we crossed the Kentucky border, my father pulled out a bunch of milk jugs and put them in the back because once we crossed into Kentucky, that car wasn't going to stop until we reached family in Southern uh, Kentucky because it was just unsafe for us to even stop and use a bathroom anywhere. And uh, we get to Atlanta and uh, Atlanta is just at that time, you know, the, the uh, epicenter of the civil rights movement. And we met all these uh, you know, hardworking civil rights uh, people. Uh, my father aspired to be the doctor to the movement <clears throat> and actually became that. He became the physician personally uh, for most, if not all, uh, the people in the movement, uh, including Martin Luther King's parents and his wife and children. He was a Martin Luther King was a young man at that time, so he really didn't need the intentions of an attorney. But he also got to recognize it was a different time. In those days, you didn't go to a hospital or a clinic uh, necessarily to see your doctor. Your personal doctor was your doctor. You you came to his home. He came to your home. So all these civil rights people like. Reverend James Orange, Reverend Fred Bennett, Hosea Williams, uh, Andrew Young, and my father knew each other well from uh, from uh, from college, but they were all regulars in our house, and um, I had a front seat to witness how they would strategize uh, about dealing with you know the inherent racism of the South. My my father's particular interest was in how to increase the numbers of black physicians that would be available. Uh, to treat black patients in Georgia. At the time we moved there, there were less than a hundred. Um, so those were my early awarenesses of uh, racism and and the fight to counter it. And um, I think that's an important part of it, uh, especially today when we talk about how do we approach dealing with our grievances and grief over what's happened to George Floyd is that when those people got together back in those days, they always had strategy meetings and they would always try to find, um, I'm not sure if they use a term then, but they probably did was a nexus. What nexus of these issues can, could they bring together to create political strategy and political effort and, and, and um, a lever uh, to change uh, the institutions of racism that were around us. And, uh, you know, th these were veterans of the Montgomery bu uh, bus boycott, and they talked about all the things they did to help black workers get to work so that they could bring the bus transit system in Montgomery to its financial knees. These are the same people that, you know, following that figured out how to get Coca-Cola to divest from apartheid in, in South Africa. <clears throat> and so 
when we're looking for answers for what to do next, we need to find that nexus. And to me, one of the, the nexus, or one of the, or the several things that brought us to a, uh, a head in this uh, tense situation is the white nationalist sympathies of the president, um, a general institutionalization of racism within the uh, uh, police forces around this country. But even more so in my personal existence here, even in Los Angeles, is that um, there's gentrification. I, I live in Venice area, and this area has been gentrified over the 10, 12 years I've lived here. My office is in Inglewood. I see it coming there as they build a football stadium. And what's happening is, is that corporations, large corporations, chain corporations, stock held, uh, stock, uh, publicly traded um, organizations are coming into these areas and they're trying to figure out how to make it comfortable for the people that they want to come into these communities and spend their money. And in large part, they're empowering local politicians and police forces to mistreat the poor and disenfranchised people in their communities who are mostly black and brown here in Los Angeles to be treated this way. And um, I think LA is in a different spot because of what happened after the Rodney King uh, uh, beating and the riot after that. But in a lot of cities across this country, they're dealing with that now. And in, in the effort to court these corporations to come into the communities, they're selling out the people that have lived there for generations. So with all this experience, this, this, this high level, very close personal family experience with the civil rights struggle from the 60s to today, with the names of the people who are paramount in that organization, the what you saw, what you heard and how it was dealt with was George Floyd broke you and turned you into an angry man what was it about that was that the final straw or was there something viscerally different about what you saw that finally made you so angry that in your own mind considering all of the discipline that you had been taught and witnessed over the last 30 40 years of a peaceful movement that told you the hell with these motherfuckers let it fucking burn Um, it wasn't just this event, uh, Ahmaud Arbery's uh, killing on video after he was herded in the street, you know, by a bunch of yahoos in cars. You know, the, I was glad to see that they arrested, you know, the guy who filmed it because he was clearly part of an effort to just corral that kid before they killed him. Um, there's no video of it, um, but uh, I, I'm equally distraught about that young black woman who was an EMT that was shot in her home by a bunch of cops who didn't even have the address right before they came in guns blazing. They don't do that in white neighborhoods. They do that in black neighborhoods only. And, um, you know, up until this week, you could easily say that this is a problem with conservatives and uh, uh, police forces that are infiltrated with groups like the Oath Keepers. Um, but, you know, even in our camp, and, 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 and I consider myself, you know, politically a liberal because I'm, I'm for liberal social causes. You know, fiscally, I'm not always with the Dems, but 
you know, socially I am, but even those within our ranks, like uh, Amy Cooper, the the Central Park Karen incident, you know, that that shows that people amongst us are still willing to use devices of institutional racism to attack us when it serves their purpose. So, I've also reflected this week on on um, my my parents and how they raised me. And uh, when we moved to the South, uh, they were very um, assertive, and including my mother's father, about making sure that we never averted our eyes from white people, like a lot of black people in the South were trained to. That we speak up for ourselves. That we don't go into any room thinking that you know that we're that anyone in that room is better than us. And um, but they also taught me that you can be fear. I mean, the, especially in in Georgia, because the most racist people were poor. But my father would tell me that they're easy to pick out. It's easy to know where they are. It's easy to smell them, hear them, know them when they walk in the room. But you still got to watch the white liberals too. And he said they'll sell you out just as quickly. And uh, I've never forgotten, you know, my father's lessons in that regard as well. Is your heart broken right now? I'm crying right now. Yes. Fifty years from now, hundred years from now, um, you or friends of yours. Their sons, their daughters are going to either be looking back on this or dealing with their own situations. Um, as a as a man, you know, who's uh, past his 50th birthday, have you found a way to live for the future or are you still really angry that the past is here in the present? Um, well, as I started this, you know, past this prologue, and uh, I, 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 I won't say that, um, like some people I know that the last 50 years have been wasted. They've not, we've made progress. Um, I, I think that there are certainly scourges that have occurred in our community, mm-hmm. like cocaine and HIV, that really hurt our progress out of the 70s. Um, but I thought, or I think, that our progress out of the 70s was hurt even more by uh, decisions like the Alan Bakke decision that basically gutted affirmative action um, in the universities in, in California while I was attending at USC. And the coup de grace was when Reagan got elected and came in and, and defunded all the federally funded uh, uh, loan programs for middle-class black kids like me to attend universities across the country. USC has never had, again, never had the black population it had when, that we enjoyed in 1978 because of the Bakke decision and because of uh, Ronald Reagan's policies. Um, there are many people who would, even in their liberal state, white folks that say, I wasn't there, I didn't enslave anybody. Why do I have to be subjected to quotas and 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 have my position taken away to right the wrongs of the past? Uh, diversification is just reverse discrimination and so on and so forth. Have you had a chance to grapple with that concept, knowing that when we look at TV, 
uh, all that intellectual shit goes out the window when a cop can put his knee on a black man's neck and not get arrested after the guy's last breath comes out of his mouth on camera saying I can't breathe but just on an intellectual basis have you had a chance to deal with that absolutely and that event didn't doesn't just serve uh, the the uh, the desires of uh, white nationalists or white racists or or the insensitive people within the police forces or GOP or Republican politics. It serves a lot of politics for people in general, including Democrats and so-called liberals. So, I, as I said, you know, there's the, the police are empowered to behave that way for the effort to create, uh, to encourage companies to come back into the cities and bring jobs that people want. And we have to divest ourselves from spending money in companies, especially these big box corporations, uh, the the uh, big chains that come in and basically run the mom and pops out of business and say, we're not going to spend money in your, in your uh, stores or your businesses unless you're coming into our community to invest in our community, job training. You know, CVS hardly pays any taxes based on what I read in Forbes magazine. I don't know that CVS has any scholarships to, uh, to promote black uh, college students to go to become pharmacists. If they have, I haven't seen it. So what are these big corporations doing for the communities other than taking and coming in and forcing police forces to create quote unquote environments, you know, for others that haven't lived in those communities previously to come back into them and be comfortable. That's where uh, our efforts have to be directed. Um, I wasn't a Hillary Clinton supporter originally. Um, and uh, what convinced me that I was willing to support her candidacy was a conversation that she had with Black Lives Matter. And in that conversation, she basically told them, if you want to change the hearts of white people, we can come back in 25 years and we'll be right here where we are. If you want to work with me, we're going to change policy. We're going to use the levers of government and the policy changes necessary to create the opportunities that you want. But coming here and expecting me to tell you that I can change the hearts of white people is a waste of time. And that was v not very widely disseminated or, or uh, published. But when she said that, I said, I'm in her camp because that's the reality of working with, with non-black liberals is that I, I want the person that, that has the reality of what has to change policy-wise and institutionally not invite me to dinner. I could care less. Um, but you know, institutionally change how our societies are run so that we aren't continually held down and attacked for being in our communities by police because they're trying to make it comfortable for white people to come back into it. Now, I'm not going to tell you how to answer this question. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to, I'm not going to push you one way or the other, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to ask a question that you 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 can answer if you feel like it or you don't have to answer if you feel like it what do you do with good white people <laughs> i i uh i have friends i fight with all the time especially about politics some of my closest business associates are republicans and we go at it all the time especially about the current president um I'm most pleased with the ones that reach out to me and, and say, what can we do differently? That's the question that everybody should be answering or asking themselves. What can I do differently? And I have a lot of respect 
some of the most entrenched Trump supporter friends that I have, uh, I, I fight with, but a couple of them have reached out to me in the past two days to say, you know, what's your take on this and what can I do differently? And so it's not a matter of being good white people or bad white people, is that are you gonna look at this situation for what it is and, and accept that things have to be different in this country and that it's not gonna change unless each of us demand that things are done differently in this country. Wow, I, the, I really- I corporations just, I just, control I just, I just, too I just, much. I just wanted to slow you down for a second. Because mm -hmm. I, I want people to just breathe on that last statement you just said. I, I, I wish I could stop this and replay that because that was amazing. Let me just try to sum it up from my memory real quick because it, it was so powerful and went by so fast, I didn't want to miss it. You said it ain't about good or bad white people. It's about, are you a person who is willing to see this situation for what it is and accept yep. that things need to be done differently? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could remove the veil of white and black and just get to the nitty gritty and say, are people being treated right? Or are people being ex exploited and abused and murdered? And shouldn't we do something different? Wouldn't, isn't that really, even though we know it's a white black problem because of the history of the United States, but the real crux of the situation, the matter before us is there are people being killed, abused, cut out of education homes being stolen neighborhoods changed being herded and corralled so that so that economic situations can take hold that will again retard their determination for the future as just a decent ability to live and breathe and shouldn't we just look at that realistically and say that is what it is and make policies policies real laws and programs that give opportunity to make it so that if we're all going to live together, we all have an opportunity. Isn't that kind of what you're really saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying is that you have to look inside and see what can you do differently? You know, I, as an employer, I, I, I run my own business. I'm always looking at how I can use my business, not just as a physician taking care of, um, my practice is, you know, rather unique. I, I have an office in North Orange County and I primarily take care of uh, white retirees in that area. And my main office is in South LA and Inglewood where I primarily take care of blacks and Hispanic people. And I'm, I, you know, I'm constantly looking at how to tailor my practice to take care of those communities as effectively as possible. But outside of that, in terms of running a business, how do I run my business to help people stay employed in, in that uh, in that area, get opportunities they haven't. I've hired people with with uh, criminal uh, backgrounds and, and prior felonies. I had um, one kid uh, that some interpreted his tattoos to mean that he had probably uh, committed a homicide before, and he just needed an opportunity. And he worked for me faithfully for years, and then got a better job and moved on, and cried as he walked out the door, thanking me for what I'd done for him. So. What is it that you're going to do to make this different? For To me, I'm not spending money in big box stores if I don't have to, unless I see them advocate for changes in how uh, they, the communities 
that they put their stores in around them. They need to have job training. They need to uh, uh, provide scholarships. They need to start paying taxes that, you know, so that these communities can can uh, thrive when they arrive, not just come in and run everybody else with a small mom and pop out of business so they can take over the community. You know, that's happening way too much. I'm telling you, I see it in Inglewood happening right now in front of me, and I've seen it in Venice where I, uh, where I live. Um, let me kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to push this a little, uh, to a different, a different Avenue, but I'm sure the conversation is the same. Right. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm just going to ask you to do a little role play on my podcast. You are free. Oh, you are, but, but just, can I just stay on the point of Venice hold on, hold on, for a minute? Hold on, you're going to be, uh, hold, hold on. I just want, hold, to, I just want hold, people to understand hold, hold, how a community hold on, hold comes on, hold together. On, hold on, hold on, hold on. Just hang okay. on for a second. Okay. Just roll with me for a second. Trust me. Right. Okay. So um, you're going to be able to answer this any way you want to. Right. Or not answer. And you're going to be able to touch on whatever subject you want to. Right. But I just want to I want to put it on a different little cloud so that um, this answer, however you answer it. Right. Is 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 going to be personal and um, it's going to draw people into how you really feel. In a sense, but I have to ask a couple of questions. You just answer the questions, and then I'm gonna lay out the scenario, and then you answer it the way you want to. Um, are do you believe in God, or are you just spiritual? Where, where are you at right there? Uh, just a short answer, not I, a real deep one on that one. Probably the best characterization is agnostic. Okay, you're agnostic. All right. Um, if the world was created uh, by a scientist, for instance, let's just pretend that there was someone that set this thing in motion, right? And he had certain parameters that he put in to the experiment and then he allowed it to organically grow. And then as the experiment goes along as a doctor and a scientist, you often look at the progress of something in order to take cues as to what its benefits and its detractions are, or what can be added, what could be taken away. If you have an in-design in your mind in other words like you're trying to find a cure or if you're just trying to see what uh certain mixes of 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 ingredients in this experiment produce in order to enlighten you to something that you never thought of before if you had a chance to walk into a bar you are you do drink sometimes right? <laughs> okay if you had a chance to walk into a bar and you bumped into this guy or woman at the bar and you said, aren't you, aren't you, aren't you the, aren't you the scientist that started this experiment? And, and he or she says, uh, yes, I am. And you said to that person, well, I was, I was just wondering if you had a moment. I just, I wanted to talk to you. And, he, and that man or woman said, oh, please sit down. I've got like three or four hours with nothing to do. And um, you guys got your favorite drinks. Um, what would that conversation be like? Well, I assume this man or woman is your you're uh, defining as as our maker right it it, it we're, we're, we're pretending here that even if you're ag- <laughs> even if you're agnostic that we're gonna we're gonna assign that somebody a person that you can talk to right started it but we're we're, move- we're removing any religious preconceptions so that we don't have to start at any certain point but uh, if if you could talk to the person who got this rolling even if they simply took a ball and rolled it down a hill and it became something at the bottom and you had to get some time to talk to that person, man or woman, 
what would that conversation sound like? Like, what would you ask him? It would be a short one from my standpoint. Well, hit us, man. Tell us what it sounds like. I'd simply say as a non-believer, why would you expect me to believe in you if you created so much unjustified pain in the world? Well, what if that person said back to you, I, I never intended for this to be a good thing? Then I'm right not to believe in you. And so if that person says, I don't care whether or not you believe in me or not, um, <laughs> I started this experiment and I'm going to be dead and it's going to keep going and you have no choice but to deal with it. Would you, yeah. would you want to would you wanna hurt that person <laughs> or, what? or would you just want to walk out? <laughs> Or did, would you want to just pull your beer on that person's head? <laughs> well, I, I I guess if I if I'm assuming I'm dealing with the Almighty, I no, would just no, say you, know, you don't. You don't have it's to. best if I get out of here and uh, <laughs> vacate this conversation before you strike me down because this isn't going in the direction that you're gonna like. I love it. That's what I'm talking about, right? Okay, so now we're real. We're talking about we're real. You are not happy with the way this situation has been set up. And you've got less than 100 years to experience it and to deal with it and to feel your way through it, right? And you're pissed right now. You are angry in the pursuit of your own personal happiness, even though your father and all his friends sacrificed their entire lives to get us to a point where it seems like we're right back where we were if, 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 you could, if you could design a Venice, you could design a Baldwin Hills, you can design a Beverly Hills, or you could design a Marina, or you could design a Lawndale, or whatever. If you had Dwayne's Island, what would Dwayne's Island look like? What would it feel like? Well, I, I'll tell you what I'm living, or the experience I'm living around right now in Venice. Okay. Um, if you've ever been on Abakini Boulevard, the first thing you'll notice as you go down this a very popular street of stores and restaurants is that there are no signs. The one uh, business that came in and put up a sign, the people of the community boycotted till they left. And I would think it was a Pinkberry um, because they did not want corporate businesses with bright signage in their neighborhood disturbing their environment. Now, this is occurring well after that same area was gentrified. When I first moved here 12 years ago, that area was very uh, difficult um, uh, for a lot of socioeconomic reasons. It has become uh, a very uh, chic and upscale neighborhood now. But the people of that community got together and decided that no one, no corporate store with their signage is gonna exist on that street. All our communities have to do the same. We're not going to patronize CVS. We're not going to patronize Home Depot. We're not going to patronize Costco if they don't come into our communities first and offer scholarships, investment programs, training and for the people, pay their freaking taxes so that our schools uh, can offer um, the same educations that they offer in Beverly Hills. And if that's what, you know, as communities, we have to join together to do. And it's got to be a sustained effort. The Montgomery boys, uh, bus boycott lasted weeks, if not months, 
And this is going to take a sustained effort that may even last longer than that for our communities to say, we're going to tell you what you have to do to come in and sell us your goods. And we're not going to buy a thing until you do. And then you don't feel like CVS is your enemy. Then you don't feel like AutoZone is your enemy or Target and all those stores that they burn down. They don't feel like there's anything for, you know, to, you know those stores offer uh, anything to them, but an opportunity for them to sell them their stuff. All right. They're not, they're, they're not promoting jobs programs to teach you know, kids in that neighborhood management skills. Okay. Let me ask you another. So go, keep, no, go ahead. The business Sorry. experiment that I'm living under tells you what a community can do if they decide to vote with their dollars and their feet and not support businesses that aren't going to come in and, and help them help raise them up. All right. I love it. I love what you're saying. I'm, I'm digging this whole conversation. All right. Here, I'm going to take you a little further. If you still you got still got time to hang in this conversation for a minute. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Right, so we're going to push it a little bit further down the road. Like I said, on 2230, my job is just to try to get you in a position to talk about what I think you want to talk about. Um, Donald Trump, I, I have my argument with some people is um, they say, uh, how can this man be so racist and how can he be so evil and, 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 and so on and so forth? And I tell them my answer is, is because he, he is, he just is. He is that way. He people used to always talk about systemic racism and institutional racism. I said, there's a name. There's a human being behind that. Um, it, he it's just for the first time in my lifetime, or at least that I can remember there. There is a person who is in absolutely the, the brightest spot on the planet Earth who unashamedly. Right is allowing you to see the people who've run the corporations over the years who've run the cities over the years who created jim crow who their insensitivity yeah yeah, the whole thing that that he is it he is he white folks are pissed because he won't keep his mouth shut because he is showing people that the reason there's institutional racism sexism right what lying criminal activity he's an ongoing criminal enterprise graft and corruption is because there's a human being who's in power who believes in being that person my question to you is have you is there can't what could you ever imagine in yourself what it's like to actually be an angry racist white male who could care less about any other human being his only objective is a dollar bill doesn't care how many people die because of it doesn't respect any of the laws and will use any of the laws to exclude anybody who stands in their way which for a lack of a better way to say it even though I'm not complaining I'm just identifying with how the West was won from the Indians with that attitude. History calls these people pioneers. Could you, as a black man, is, is it in you to even feel what that is like to exist like that, to have a mentality like that? I'm just curious. 
Uh, let me take a deep breath here. Uh, I'm sure anybody who listens to this podcast who knows me is probably doing the same right now because I could go off on a rant that would probably last the rest of this day about all that's wrong with the Trump presidency. Um, but um, this week has been very uh, illuminating for me uh, in, in regards to him. I've always uh, agreed with the um, concept that Trump is a, a symptom. He is not a cause. Let me repeat that. Trump is a symptom, not a cause. He is the result of years of right-wing media confabulation, particularly on Fox News and Breitbart and similar outlets. But he is a symptom, not a cause. And this week has displayed this um, for you completely. In the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of the worst civil strife in, I think it was 75 cities yesterday that the country has seen in 50 years. In the, in the background of a, of a developing Cold War with China, in the background of an epidemic that's decimating populations all over the world, allies and developing countries that need us, this symptom is sitting around texting conspiracy theories and other asinine topics and has not risen to even attempt to try to heal the country or control the situation. He's an afterthought. And so like a symptom, he is an afterthought to the cause. And he has displayed that now. And anyone who's watching what's going on knows that he has no interest in doing anything. And if he did have interest, he doesn't have it within him to find the way. So he has become more irrelevant to me than he ever has been. And so I don't choose to expend the energy that I would normally do ranting about all that's wrong with him and his presidency. If you were to have a baby delivered tomorrow, and you pick that child up in your arms and you look down upon that child <clears throat> knowing that that was the first minutes of their life what's the good news bro the good news is is that uh, a lot of kids in the immediate generation above him are awakened I don't agree with the looting but they're awake now we just gotta be very aggressive about helping them figure out how to channel their awakening in a uh, effective and productive way. Brother, man, I wanna tell you, I love you with all my heart and soul. I started this podcast because I believe that in today's world, we have an ability to put uh, our thoughts and prayers out into the world uh, without it having to go through the filter of uh, a corporate structure and I'm, I'm the kind of person that believes a pebble can create a wave that can turn into a waterfall that can rush into an ocean and um, I, I am just 
absolutely uh, thankful and 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 awesomely, awesomely appreciative of you even taking the time out to uh, express how you feel and share with me and myself and my audience. And um, I want to offer you a moment to give any final words that you'd like to say. But I just want to tell you from the bottom of my 2230 Redondo heart, man, thank you for coming on. And I don't think this will be the last time you're on. Uh, there's so much to talk about, but I, I think that it couldn't have been a better person than God, my God, right? My concept of that. Uh, and, and that's a whole nother story. <laughs> Check that out in some of the other <laughs> podcasts. Would send me, as I believe you were a blessing, to talk about the inflection that has now captured the world where I was watching protests in London today. So please take the floor for the final moments of this segment and uh, uh, lay out whatever it is you would like people to understand. And then we'll wrap it up. And I just want to give you a big electronic social separation hug after that. Um, I'd love to come back and talk about health issues uh, and my ideas on how we solve health disparities and you know some simple things that everybody can do on a daily basis. And I look forward to a chance to do that with you in the future. Um, Killer Mike gave a profound from the heart pleading to the city citizens of Atlanta. I think it was yesterday. Um, and he finished or in the course of it gave a couple of uh, things, action items that we need to take now. Number one is fill out your census form. I'm with him totally on that. And then uh, secondly, boycotts, or secondly, I guess, no, secondly, vote. Register to vote. Every um, And I, every chance I get, I'm gonna have Reggie's um, t-shirt on that says, I can't wait to vote. That has to be, our mantra as a community is, I can't wait to vote. Get everybody ginned up to get out here and vote all these people out the offices. Not just Trump. I'm talking about local politicians who are selling out our communities to these corporations to make us uncomfortable where we've been for the 40 years I've been in Los Angeles. And finally, boycotts work. From a lifelong experience, I've been in the room with my father and his friends strategizing on it. Boycotts work. We need to make these corporations that come into our communities pay to be there and take care of us in order to come in and get our dollars. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Dwayne Bridges on 2230 Redondo. Thank you, my coming on. And uh, we will talk to you soon. Peace in the Middle East. I will be publishing this segment very soon for sharing with all our general folks and I hope that people multiply it throughout the community. Thank you again for coming and I appreciate your love and your honesty. Thanks for all you do. Peace Steve. in the Middle East. Bro.